Welcome everyone on this holiday weekend where we're uh, reminded of the wonderful opportunities and blessings we have that come with, with freedom. I uh, hope you'll stay around uh, following our service today. We have our uh, fireworks here in the auditorium. That'll be good. Looking forward to that. I'm just kidding about that. Uh, we're not going to celebrate quite like that. But uh, if you're watching online, we're just glad that you're with us. Uh, if you're a guest today, I've already had the opportunity to meet several of you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we are in the midst of a message series uh, of, in the book of Acts. So you might want to be turning to that passage that was read just a moment ago, Acts chapter 11. Uh, one of the things we said at the very beginning of this message series was that Luke wrote his gospel to show what Jesus began to do and to teach when he was on the earth. Luke wrote his acts to show what Jesus continues to do and to teach after his resurrection. And that's really the exciting thing and one of the reasons why I especially like the book of Acts because in a very real sense through the agency and influence of the Holy Spirit, we're partnering with God to continue the story. We're, in a sense, writing Acts chapter 29. Now, if you're new to the church and you're not familiar with the book of Acts, you know there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And so we're writing Acts chapter 29. It's really an amazing thing. And the other thing I love about the book of Acts is that we've, we've been noticing these incredible leaders that we find in the book. <clears throat> leaders like Peter. And we've seen the transformation in his life. So, for instance, in the Gospels, we see Peter as this timid fisherman who's ashamed even to acknowledge Jesus in front of a little servant girl. And yet, by the time we come to Acts chapter 2, Peter is standing, standing in front of thousands of men and women testifying to the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. Or we read about leaders like Stephen. Here's this humble servant who was chosen in Acts chapter 4. And by the time we come to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching. And he preaches so powerfully and persuasively that it created a kind of a furor among the religious insiders, the Jews. And Stephen gives his life for what he believes in. He's stoned, he dies. We read about leaders like Barnabas. <clears throat> I want to be a Barnabas. Barnabas is this amazing encourager. We know his name actually was Joseph, but the disciples, the apostles, they gave him this nickname. He's known as Barnabas, the son of exhortation or the son of encouragement. And we see him encouraging the church through his finances in Acts chapter 4. We see him encouraging Saul through friendship in Acts chapter 9. We see him encouraging the church through follow-up in Acts chapter 11. And then there's, there's Saul. We'll come to know him as Paul. And we know that, that Saul is this amazing leader. And we find out that, that Saul experiences this transformation moment. We saw that last week. Wilson did a great job helping us to see that. And he goes from someone who's wreaking havoc on the church Someone that the church was absolutely terrified of because he was gathering up Christians and killing men and women who confessed Jesus. He is transformed from that to someone who's the church's greatest advocate and proponent 
someone who's sold out for Jesus. We're, we're introduced to some amazing leaders in the book of Acts. And if we're not careful, we read their stories and we say, well, well I'm no Peter. I'm no Barnabas. I'm not Stephen. I'm certainly not Saul. And then we say, can God really use me? We read the Bible and we hear about these stories and we think that they're superheroes. And we think that, well, God only uses these amazing, amazing, larger-than-life, almost comic book hero kind of persons, and he certainly can't use me. And yet the truth of the matter is, God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. And we see that plot also in the book of Acts. So we see how that Lydia, she begins a church in her home in Philippi. We read about Priscilla and Aquila. How that there's this amazing proclaimer of the gospel, this man by the name of Apollos. And nobody could preach quite like Apollos. And yet he was confused on some matters. And so what did Priscilla and Aquila do? They invited Apollos alongside them and they, they sort of straightened him out. They, they helped him to see things a little more clearly. God uses ordinary people and he does extraordinary things. And that brings us to the passage that was read for you just a moment ago, Acts chapter 11. <clears throat> and what we're going to talk for a moment or two about today is we're going to think about this, as I want to describe it, maybe, arguably, the most influential church in the first century. I was talking to some guys just a few moments ago out as we're greeting people who were coming in, and I said, what is the most influential church in the, in the Bible. Uh, an argument could be made for Jerusalem. You know, the church began on the day of Pentecost, right there. That, we could say that that's a very influential church, maybe the most influential. Somebody would say, well, maybe, maybe it's the church in Rome. I mean, this church was planted in the largest city in the world, the New York City of its day. Somebody else would say, well, maybe it's Ephesus. A lot of amazing things happened in Ephesus. I mean, a book of the Bible is written to uh, Ephesus. But I think there's, I'm going to make an argument for another church, for, for a church that you, you likely haven't thought that much about. And here's the interesting thing about this church. We don't read any huge, larger-than-life superstar preacher who begins this church. Now, this church is going to attract some key leaders, and they're going to send these key leaders out into the world to make a huge difference. But we don't even know who began this church that we're going to read about in just a moment. And it's almost like as we read the story of this church, God is making this point. God can use people like you and me. God can use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Look what happened in this particular church. The church we're talking about this morning is the church in Antioch. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't know that I've thought that much about the church in Antioch. I've never really considered that church a lot. But Luke begins telling his story about the church in Antioch this way. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 19, I want to reread some of the words that were read for you just a moment ago by Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for reading scripture a moment ago. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out upon uh, when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them 
Now, I want to know who that is, but we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. It just says some of them. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. That's significant, by the way. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. As we said, these folks, they, they traveled from Cyprus and Cyrene onto Antioch, and it just says some of them. What did some of them do? Some of them began to spread the good news. Now, you remember the apostles, they stayed back in Jerusalem, right? In Acts chapter 8, persecution comes upon the church. The, the church is scattered. Everyone left except for the apostles. They're staying there. And so the sum of them, these weren't apostles. Some of them were average, ordinary folks like you and I. The church is scattered. And what did they do? They, they began to tell others about the gospel of Jesus and the church began to grow. The other line that jumped out at me as I read this this week is this line right here which says, the Lord's hand was with them. We see how that the Lord's hand was with them because a great number of people were turning to the Lord. That's a prayer that I pray for us all the time. I hope you'll join with me in praying for that, that, that God's hand will be on our church because when God, God's hand is in it, when God's hand is on us, amazing things begin to happen. Things like large numbers of people who are turning to Jesus in faith. And so as I said a moment ago, I, I believe Antioch was this really important and key church, arguably the most influential church in that first century. You've heard me say that, so let me take just a moment and make a case for that. Now, let's do a quick show of hands as we begin today. How many of you were raised in Jewish homes where you kept the law, you, made, you were very careful about uh, eating only kosher, and yet at some point along the way, you came to believe in Jesus? Does that, does that describe anybody in this room? Can I see any hands? Anybody? Does that describe anybody? I'm not. I'm looking around. Looking in the back, I, I, don't, I don't see anybody whose hand is raised, and I would assume so. What that means is all of us in this room are Gentiles. None of us were raised in Jewish homes. So when we trace our spiritual lineage, we don't trace our spiritual lineage back to Jerusalem, a church that was entirely Jewish, men and women raised in this Jewish background who then put their trust in Jesus. No, we, trust, we trace our lineage back to Antioch, this church that began intentionally reaching out to Greeks. That, to me, makes this church very influential. Had it not been for the Antioch church, we, not, we might not be here this morning. But here's another reason why this church is so significant. This is the first place where, where we find that disciples are called Christians. Acts eleven twenty six. 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now today, we wear the name Christian proudly. The word Christian is the most recognized. It, it's a word that's associated with, with disciples almost exclusively. We use that word all the time. But notice in Antioch, the Bible does not say they called themselves Christians. 
This is the first place where outsiders, folks who were not followers of Jesus, they looked at the disciples, they looked at the followers of the way, and they called them Christians. Now, what does that mean? It means that the church in Antioch was so distinctive. The church in Antioch was was so different. These people were so different that when outsiders, can I use the word lost people, when people who had not yet identified with Jesus, when they looked at this church, when they looked at their lifestyle, it was so distinctive, they said they are Christians. They are little Christs. The way they speak, it reminds us of Jesus. The way they care about people who are outside their community, it reminds us of Jesus. The way they are concerned about one another, it reminds us of Christ. They are Christians, though they may not have meant that in a um, positive way. It said something powerful and wonderful about this church. It made it an amazingly influential church. The church in Antioch was also important for one more reason, and it's this. This was the first church that sent out missionaries on purpose. Now, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, Kevin. Um, What about the people who originally came here? Well, they did not come to Antioch as a church plant. Uh, The Jerusalem church said, let's send a team of people to Antioch and let's do a demographic study uh, and let's get our missionaries trained in all the latest missiological thinking uh, and let's, uh, let's let's figure out what this culture is like and how best to bring the gospel to reach the culture. Let's do all those studies. Let's see what they want, how we can bet. They didn't do any of that. Acts chapter 8, the church experiences persecution. The church is scattered. Men and women started moving, sort of Antioch is, is in the area of Galatia, that Galatia area. It's north of Jerusalem, kind of north, um, northwest actually. And when they made it there, they just began doing what disciples of Jesus do, and they began telling others about Christians. This church, Antioch church, was not planted with intentionality. But here's the amazing thing that happened. When the church was there and God began growing and that church, growing the church, and that church began to thrive, in Acts chapter 13, we read about how the the church came together and they prayed and they fasted. And with a lot of intentionality, they sent out two key leaders who weren't originally there, but eventually we'll talk about in just a moment, came came over to, to Antioch. They sent out two key leaders, Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul when he starts reaching out to, to, to other Gentiles. They sent those two out to plant, the church, to plant churches and to go on missionary journeys. They went on a number of missionary journeys. Antioch becomes the center of Paul's church planting ministry. And so think about the influence of this church. This church, I think, began to understand something that oftentimes we in the modern church, in the American church, so they understood something we forget, and it's this. A greatness of a church is not measured by its seeding capacity, but by its sending capacity. This church was great in part because they had a big heart for mission. They had a big heart for mission in Antioch, as we will see, but they had a big heart for mission literally all over the world. This was an incredibly influential 
church. The hand of the Lord was on them. And so this week as I'm reading about the Antioch church, two phrases kind of jumped off the page at me. One was that, that the hand of the Lord was on them. And I thought, boy, in America today, we need God's hand to be on his church. In Wilson County, we need for God's hand to be on the College Hills Church. But there's another word or phrase that that jumped out at me that I found amazing. See, here's what happens. The church in Antioch is thriving. It's growing. The church down in Jerusalem, well, they hear about what's going on. And they're just a little bit suspicious. They're wondering, what's going on? You know, sometimes when churches, when good things start happening in churches, but other folks want to go, ah, now what's going on in that church? I don't know. Are they, are they watering down the gospel? I mean, are they telling the truth? Are they, what's going on over there? And so Jerusalem's hearing about that. And so what does Jerusalem do? They send a key leader up to Antioch. Scripture says down to Antioch. It's actually north, but Jerusalem is higher elevation, so it could be down to Antioch. They send this key leader. Who do they send? They send Barnabas, this amazing leader, this incredible encourager. They send Barnabas. And I love the line. This this is the line that jumped out at me this week as I read the story afresh. In Acts 11.23, it says this. "When When he, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. So here's the question I've been kind of wrestling with as I wrote this sermon this week is, what did Barnabas see? What did he experience? And so when, you know, when, um, if Barnabas were here um, and, and he were to say about us, well, I see the grace, what would that mean? I see the grace of God. And it means, I think, a couple of things. So the first indication of what grace looks like it's found in verse 25, but we'll read in just a second. So what, what Barnabas does, Barnabas has been there for a while, and then it says, then he went to Tarsus, go back one slide, guys. Then he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, this is amazing. Now, this makes perfect sense to us. Saul, this amazing missionary, this amazing preacher, this this one who wrote about half of our New Testament, wrote more New Testament books than any other New Testament writer. Luke actually wrote more material, but, but Saul wrote, who becomes Paul, wrote more New Testament books. So Barnabas goes to get Saul. What does that say? I think it says this. Next slide, guys. Grace gives people second chances. As we said, it makes perfect sense for us that Barnabas would want to go and get Saul. But how do you think the church in Antioch felt when they find out that this person by the name of Saul is coming? They don't know what he's going to become. We've talked before in this message series how that in Acts chapter 7, right after Stephen is stoned, where is Saul? Saul is there. He's sort of holding their cloaks. He's watching what's, what's transpiring. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Let that sink in for a minute. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, we find that Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. It would be hard to overstate 
the fear, the trepidation that people had in the ancient world with regard to this person by the name of Saul. He was doing damage. And then he meets Jesus, and his life is changed. And Barnabas goes, and he sees the hand of the Lord is on this church. And what is Barnabas? The first thing he does, he says, i got to go get Saul. He's going to be great here. He's going to be influential here. But you can imagine how when the disciples in Antioch hear that Barnabas has gone to get Saul, you can imagine how they would have thought. You can imagine what, how they would have responded to that. As, as Barnabas comes back and he says, hey, I've, I've got a, a new leader. I want to, he can be helpful to us here as we nurture the disciples. It's a young church, fledgling church. We need some more leadership. I've, I've decided to go get Saul, get this person. And they said, well, who, who is it? Who did you go get? Well, we went to get Saul. Saul? Saul. You mean the one who a few years ago was, was killing those of us who follow Jesus? You mean you want to go get that person? who destroyed the church, you're going to bring that Saul? Barnabas smiles and says, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing about grace. Grace is all about second chances. And that's what we're about as a church. I'm looking around the room today and I'm seeing some people who've struggled with addiction. You needed a church who would offer you a second chance. I'm looking around this room and I see some men and women who've unfortunately experienced the trauma of divorce. I'm married to someone who knows what it's like to go through a divorce. The pain and the heartache of that. And unfortunately, there are some places, there are some churches, you're persona non grata if you've had a divorce. Not this place. We're about second chances. I was having a conversation just um, about three weeks ago with a person, and this person describes their background, describes their life, a life just knee-deep in sin, living for themselves in the world. And this person said to me, I got everything I thought I wanted, and I realized when I got it all, it didn't mean anything. And I realized I needed Jesus. But I didn't know if I'd be accepted if I came back here. I said, oh, you'd be accepted. You'd be loved. We're about second chances. That's what the grace of God is all about. That's exactly what Saul needed and he got. And, and look at the incredible thing that Saul has done. The incredible influence that Saul has had because a church believed in him enough to give him a second chance. What does grace look like? When Barnabas came and he, he looked at this church, he saw a church that was willing to give others second and third and fourth chances. But here's something else. There's something else about grace, and it's this. Grace makes us a more welcoming people. Antioch was a church that welcomed all kinds of people, people of other races and cultures and backgrounds and so we see in verse 20 where it says they went to Antioch and notice in your Bible I'm not going to put this on the screen but if you have your Bible open in Acts chapter 11 you'll read this verse verse 20 they began to speak to Greeks also 
See, some that were scattered were only speaking to Jews. Some that went on this incredible mission were only talking to others who looked like them or had their own same background. But, but there were some who went to Antioch. Antioch was different. And they began very intentionally preaching the gospel, building relationships cross-culturally. And I think the word intentional is important. They very intentionally were welcoming all kinds of people. And there's something beautiful we see when we come to Acts 13, where the church has this prayer meeting, they pray and they fast, they come together, they're in worship, and they eventually send out Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, if you read that list of names, and Mariko, I'm not going to read all the names for you, bless your heart. Long names. <laughs> but if you read that list of names, you see a guy from Cyrene. Where is that? That's North Africa. You read about Barnabas. He's Jewish. You read a guy by the name of Menaean. Where's Menaean from? He's from the household. He had relationship with the family of Herod, the Tetrarch. He probably had some money, wealth, influence. It's, it's a church filled with all kinds of people. They welcomed all sorts of folks. That's, that's the kind of community, friends, that grace builds. Grace builds a church where everyone is welcome. You see, the gospel is about breaking down barriers and bringing all kinds of people together. I've always found it interesting that in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, you have this little paragraph about, about how our relationship with God is restored. It is by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But then the very next paragraph, beginning in verse 11, he talks about how grace not only has this impact on my relationship with God, but grace also brings together Jews and Gentiles. We skip over that paragraph, but that paragraph is huge. And understand, it's, it's hard for us to imagine, to fathom the racial tension that existed in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. And yet Paul said in the gospel, God has created one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Marriage is a metaphor that works just about in any sermon you preach, I've found. Marriage uh, is a metaphor for the church, and it's also the church is a metaphor for marriage. You find that in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul uses that imagery. So I like to think of it like this. The church has a unity we're to preserve. Now we see that in marriage, don't we? Unity, uh, not quite yet, one, one second before we get to that slide. Unity is very important. Unity in a marriage is very significant. Now there's a phrase... Um, that probably most men in this room know, and you know it's very important for your marriage uh, to work, for your marriage to, to go well. In fact, I would like for you to, uh, guys in the room, kind of quote the last half of this phrase. I'm going to say the first half of the phrase, and I bet you know, I bet you know the second half uh, of the phrase. And it's this. If mama ain't happy, Ain't, ain't nobody. That's exactly right. Why? Unity is important in a marriage, right? Unity is important in our, in our family. We need to be sensitive toward one another, have this sense of, of unity. But now here, now, now next, let's put the slide up. 
The church has a unity we're to, we're to preserve and a diversity we're to value. Think about your own marriage. One of the beauties of marriage is that God brings two diverse people together in a relationship. God brings a man and a woman. That's what a marriage is. It's a man and a woman. God brings a man and a woman to get together in a relationship. Now, you can't get a lot more different than that at the very outset. You know, the amazing thing is what happens in, in our dating relationships. You've probably noticed this, right? You're dating, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I, I found one person that I, we think alike. We're just so compatible. We share everything. We just view life just alike. And so then, you, you, you know, you're in that spot and you, you date and then you get married and three weeks after you marry you realize we think nothing alike right and, and we think, well, maybe, maybe we did something made a mistake married the wrong person no you haven't married the wrong person that's what makes the marriage beautiful and wonderful is all this diversity it's it's a man and a woman but then it just continues to get even more diverse than that. We're raised in two different families, you know, and, and every person is raised in their family, and that's your point of reference, and you think that's how family should work. I mean, my family is how family should operate. For some strange reason, Jana thinks her family is how things should operate, but, uh, you know, she, she's not here today, so just, she's wrong on that, but, you know, it should, it should operate according to how my family, because I mean, that's, that's, that's right. You know, and so you have this, all this difference and all this diversity, but here's the beautiful thing. That's what makes it interesting and wonderful. And so here you have this church in Antioch. And for the first time, everybody didn't just look alike or think alike or have the same perspective. No, there's, there's difference. And that's a beautiful thing. It's what grace looks like. But God's grace does one other thing. It fills us with generosity. Church in Antioch receives some prophets, and through them they, they hear about this severe famine. And, and what do they do? Well, they decide to help. Their hearts are filled up with generosity. In verse 29, it says, The disciples, as each one is able, decided to help for the brothers, provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Again, we don't know their names. We don't know who these people are. But just each one, as they were able, God's blessed us all differently. But each one, as we're able, what did, what did they do? They decided to give so that they could bless this church, bless those who are experiencing uh, the famine. Great. When grace gets a hold of our hearts, it'll express itself in generosity. See, the church in Antioch, the reason I love it, it's not the story of Peter's preaching like it is in Acts chapter 2. It's not the story so much of of Paul and the great stuff he did, or it's not even really the story of Barnabas. We don't know who began the church in Antioch. We know God's hand was on them, and we know that when Barnabas comes down to Antioch, he sees the grace of God among them. We don't know who they were. They were ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Now, as we conclude today, I want to tell you about how an ordinary person I think had an extraordinary impact on our family. And I'm sure this person doesn't even know the impact that he had. There was a time in my mom and dad's life when they got out of the habit of going to church. My sister and I were little kids, probably 
I was probably eight or nine, and she's four or five. I remember we would get up on Sunday mornings, and we'd be very, very quiet around the house because we thought, if we don't make any noise, mom and dad will continue to sleep, and we can play. And so one Sunday morning, certainly, we were outside, out front, playing. Mom and dad were sleeping. I can't remember the last time we'd been to church. We were outside playing, having a big time, and a, a man was driving down the street with his family on the way to church. I've since found out that this was a preacher for a local church in town, well-known church, different from our tribe. And he sees these kids out front on a Sunday morning playing. And so he stops and goes up to us and says, uh, uh, where, where's your mom and dad? And uh, you know how kids are. Um, they're inside uh, praying. No, we didn't say that. I mean, you know, kids are just brutally honest. Where's mom and dad? Um, <laughs> I th they're probably in their sleep. And so this ordinary person went up to our door and knocked on the door. My dad comes to the door. Yes. And the man says, I just, I noticed your kids were out front. Uh, we're, we're on our way to church. Uh, would it be okay next Sunday if we came by just a little earlier? I noticed they're not, you know, y'all don't go anywhere to church. Would it be okay if if we picked up your kids and took them with us over at, at church, you know, right in town, you know where it is, right downtown. My dad looked at him and smiled and said, uh, thank you for asking, but I don't think so. Thank you. Where do you think we were next Sunday morning? We were in church. I don't know why I do what I do. Some days I really don't know why I do. <laughs> I do. But I wonder what would have happened had that kind-hearted man not knocked on our door, asked my mom and dad if he could take them to church. We were in church the next Sunday morning. We were in the church the next years after that. And somewhere along the way, I felt the passion to preach. My sister married a preacher who's now president of Lubbock Christian University. And I look at our lives, average people, lower middle class home, southern Illinois town, I wonder what would have happened had that ordinary man not stopped to knock on our door. Here's the interesting thing. He, he knocked on the door and he leaves after his conversation with my dad. My dad's a nice, likable guy. I'm sure he was very nice to him, but he said no. And he may have thought to himself, I've, I've failed. I didn't, I, I didn't do any good today. That man will never know the good that he did. Ordinary people. God can use to do extraordinary things. You may never preach a sermon. You may never teach a class. You may never lead a life group. But you can invite somebody to come to church with you. You can invite some kids to come and be a part of our children's ministry. You can do ordinary things, and God will bless those ordinary things in such extraordinary ways. Today, if, if uh, you've never responded to this gift of grace, the invitation is for all of us. I would love to help you. Uh, I'd love to help you in any way I can. Come down front while we stand and while we sing.